Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to episode 120 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Dan, how are you holding up this week? Barely, Leslie, barely. How about you? I'm all right. You know, lot, lots of caffeine in this household uh, this week with Upfront's news. And yeah, there's a lot going on. Well, uh, as always, we appreciate you maintaining sanity exactly long enough to record this podcast before going back to the madness. But I feel like we need to get it recorded quickly because there's going to be news breaking every second that we're recording. Yeah, you know, it just, you know, feels honestly like there will be segments in this episode that will be out of date because as we record this, it's Thursday afternoon, about 1230 now. Um, I'm expecting this afternoon and Friday to be incredibly busy. We know NBC's press call with reporters and their fall schedule is coming out in the morning after obviously our episode does. So you can find all the latest Upfronts news. This is my shameless plug on our live feed blog at thrfeed.com. But yeah, lots going on and let's dive into it. Bring it on. In long-anticipated news that we've been talking about on the podcast pretty much since we started doing the podcast, HBO Max has set May 27th, also known as the streamer's first birthday, for the launch of its highly anticipated and endlessly delayed Friends Reunion special. They also announced a bunch of guest stars who will take time away from the actual Friends Reunion that we've all been waiting for. Anywho, the Warner Media-backed platform has also picked up the family Gordita Chronicles, two series. The game is officially returning to Paramount Plus, with the streamer handing out a series pickup for a revival from the original creative team and featuring several legacy cast members. The former CBS All Access has also tapped Kiefer Sutherland to top line an espionage drama series for the streamer. The show is currently heading into its first season and on its first showrunner. Hashtag callback. FXX has picked up animated comedy Little Demon with Aubrey Plaza and Danny DeVito leading the vocal cast. In casting news, Glow favorite Betty Gilpin will star alongside Julia Roberts and Sean Penn in the Watergate drama Gaslit for stars. Feels as if there are a lot of Watergate dramas coming next year, almost like it's a 50th anniversary or something. And in pandemic-related cancellations, Amazon has abandoned plans for its globetrotting drama The Banker's Wife after realizing production on the series would prove challenging and costly. And it's also been a busy week of headlines for the broadcast networks, which we'll get into with our first topic, Dan. Number one. Leading off, as we mentioned last week, and as we're going to mention next week, it's Upfront's Time. 
all that means, for those who do not remember, is that this is the time of the year when the networks gather together with advertisers under normal circumstances and blow a lot of money trying to get a lot of their money talking about all of the upcoming programming and business type initiatives. This year is going to be a little bit different, but perhaps a little bit less different than last year. So I guess really and truly, this is the part where Leslie is just going to unload a tremendous amount of information on us because it is a week of avalanche news. Bring it on, Leslie. Where do you want to start? Let's start with NBC since they're first out of the gate. As we mentioned at the top of the show, Francis Berwick and Susan Rovner will present their fall lineup for NBC on Friday morning. That is today. If you're listening to this on the day that we drop, which a lot of you do, thank you for listening. It's also yesterday if you're listening to this on Saturday and two days ago if you're listening to this on Sunday. And it's also just, man, time is a flat circle. I still am really not leaving the house a whole lot. Um, so with NBC going first, a lot of news around the network has really started to leak this this week. And it's not just the network. It's the entire NBC Universal uh, streaming and cable portfolio. So lots of headlines. I'll just dive into it. So on Friday, NBC is expected to announce news that has not been a secret for the last three years, or at least the last two years, since I reported as uh, in 2019 that This Is Us, renewed for three more seasons, would be its final three seasons. And that's true. This Is Us will officially end next season with its sixth and final season. NBC will make that announcement Friday. NBC has also set Annie as its next live musical event, with the production marking a return to the network for former entertainment chief Bob Greenblatt. That'll air around the holidays and the push for big eyeballs around uh, an otherwise quiet period. Meanwhile, Berwick and Rovner, who also oversee Peacock and a whole bunch of cable networks, have changed up E's red carpet coverage, tapping Laverne Cox to replace Ryan Seacrest and Juliana Rancic. The change comes as Rovner and Berwick are also reimagining the 1.30 a.m. slot after dropping Lily Singh. Um, and her show for after two seasons. In related news, Rovner and Berwick have also decided that the Joe Exotic limited series starring Kate McKinnon and John Cameron Mitchell is better suited as an exclusive for Peacock and will no longer air across Peacock, NBC, and USA Network. So just the streaming platform after Rovner reviewed the scripts. That was a show that was picked up before she got there. And obviously, much of the last year has been spent focused on that show's creative. So in other news, you get all their cable networks. There's six different cable networks that they also oversee as part of their big portfolio. They unveiled 30 new unscripted shows that will air across networks like Bravo and Oxygen and E. And then you've got Sci-Fi and USA, which will both share some scripted fare like Chucky. Uh, there's probably a bunch more news still coming. I know that, you know, they announced the third movie in the Psych trilogy for Peacock. NBC also picked up Days of Our Lives for two additional seasons after there was some uh, controversy around that. But yeah, a lot going on over there. But it's interesting to see Rovner and Berwick really get to work at, at, on what their vision is for the entire platform, for not just the streamer, but for I'm eager to see what they do with NBC. It kind of looking at all the renewals that they've done so far in the new series pickups. Granted, the development stuff is, is a slate that they inherited, but it's it's feels like it's going to be business as usual at NBC. But we'll wait and see. Yeah, there was there was the big deal about how NBC was leveraging various products across various different platforms. And so it's interesting to see the Joe Exotic thing now being Peacock exclusive. I kind of wonder how much of that relates to exactly how not hot the iron is that they're striking at on that particular project. And if it's going to be, say, a little bit more of a niche thing than the gigantic, massive thing that 
they presumably thought it was when it was announced. I, I feel as if definitely there was a moment at which that was going to be the biggest thing in the world. And now it might just be a, you know, a fun little awards play. Yeah, but it's a fun little awards play with Kate McKinnon, who is a draw. Absolutely. So. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not I'm not taking anything away from it or away from some curiosity. Just it it ain't the thing it was when they announced it. And that's just what happens when, you know, time passes. So, OK, that is NBC. Up next, the American Broadcasting Network. Yes, the Disney-owned broadcaster has, following prolonged negotiations with original cast members Ellen Pompeo, Jim Pickens, and Chandra Wilson, renewed Grey's Anatomy for its 18th season. The spinoff Station 19 will also be back for its fifth run. All three original stars will return, though the show will be without Jesse Williams, who will exit this month. Uh, and if you've been reading and following along with what's going on with Grey's, that was announced last week in a big, fun episode that featured the return of former cast member Sarah Drew. Uh, the network has also renewed the bulk of its unscripted fare, including American Idol and Shark Tank and America's Funniest Home Videos, which is a favorite um, in this household and among my wife and her crew. Uh, so yeah, they still ABC still has um, the bulk of its renewals and cancellations to make. It, it's really the the network that's done the least early decision making, and it has an, again, like NBC does, new executive regime with Hulu's Craig Erwick overseeing the entire platform as well as the broadcast network. So it'll be interesting to see if he keeps it business as usual. There's a couple of things on the bubble there that will be surprising, and I'm expecting a final season announcement for Blackish, which could come either Thursday or Friday. So you know, probably probably by the weekend, I would be I would expect so. Lots still still to be t determined there, but it does again feel a lot like business as usual. And then in terms of pilots, one thing that I have have heard from multiple sources is that the Wonder Years, the Lee Daniels um, updated take with uh, with which counts original star Fred Savage as a director, came in great. So expect to see that on the schedule at some point too. Definitely seem like interesting things. Uh, somewhat not, I guess, surprising at all that they didn't announce that the next Grey season is going to be the whatever 18th and final season but what i'm now figuring everyone has to be holding out for is uh that it can make it at least a season 19 so that they can uh market s19 and s19 together as a, a package deal um yeah i don't think that's going to happen dan but i also don't think it's going to end anytime soon you know look creator shonda rhimes has said Grey's anatomy will run for as long as star ellen pompeo wants to do it you know she along with pickens and wilson got sizable pay raises to return that is a stalwart. It is a mega hit, not just for Netflix, where it streams its entire library, but it's a global property. I would expect to see another spinoff from that franchise before I, I hear any kind of news about a final season. Def and definitely, this is this is not a surprise. We've been asked about it multiple times, and every time we've been asked about it, Leslie has been very, very optimistic about its renewal hopes. So there it goes. Okay, so that was ABC. Leslie, what does the Fox say? <laughs> That will always be funny to me, Dan. So Fox canceled Prodigal Son after two seasons and picked up country music drama Monarch and mob drama The Cleaning Ladies to series. On the comedy side, the network has also ordered Pivoting, starring Eliza Coop, Jennifer Goodwin, and Maggie Q. Series. Pivot! 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 And renewed Mayim Bialik comedy Call Me Cat for a second season with a new showrunner as that one changes the creative. So you've still... You know, they also have decided have passed on their remaining pilots. They're pretty much done. You know, there's a couple of things still in the bubble. They're going to renew the nine uh, nine one one shows. Um, 
I think the resident is very, very much on the bubble, and it wouldn't surprise me to see that go away. But at the same time, you know, it's it's almost I believe it's fully owned by Disney. You know, it hasn't really broken out, especially in a year where medical dramas, there, there was a lot of pressure on them to actually be smart and up their game. They tried. It wasn't written into the season the way that Grace did it. But, you know, there's rumors going around that that creator, Amy, uh, that the creator of the show is not getting a new deal at 20th, but may only get a show deal, which could signal that maybe Fox doesn't exactly need it. Um yeah, but but as the network is going to lose uh, football next season, they're going to have to have some new projects to slot there and and to fill that void. So I think you're going to see more volume there. But I I believe that that they're done. I would be surprised to see, to see them do anything else at this point. And finally, there's a little bit of late breaking news, courtesy of the CW. What is it, Leslie? Yeah, this just in: the CW is expanding to Saturdays. The network will now program originals seven nights a week uh, you'll have to stay tuned to find out what exactly will air on what is really known as tv's dreaded time slot the saturday night it's usually reserved for burn-offs but cw is expected to announce the what will fill that slot when it has a press call with reporters i believe not next week but the week after so i think it's the 25th if memory serves and yeah there's a lot of press calls coming up so and then there's CBS and they, you know, we haven't talked about CBS a whole lot that, you know, network usually t tends to keep things pretty close to the vest, but we they've gotten all the NCISs. They've got all, all new versions of a lot of their their big procedural franchise. They signed Mark Harmon. I heard sources say it's a, a one year deal to return. So we're going to go through this all again, probably next season, but maybe Harmon will want to come back again. So maybe there'll be a final season announcement somewhere in there. Um, I know, Dan, you have thoughts on Mom, which is ending this week on CBS, so you'll hear that in Critics Corner. But yeah, at a certain point, you know, I, I almost wonder how much they really need Mark Harmon and NCIS and if, you know, and how much the, it, his contract makes it worth doing, especially since, you know, the, the entire series is on Netflix and not Paramount Plus, or not exclusive to Paramount Plus, I should say. So I assume some of that might uh, be determined by how well the Hawaii set spinoff does. I suspect if the Hawaii set spinoff is wildly successful, it gives CBS a little bit of room to say, okay, the mothership can go off into the sunset. But. Yeah, but they still have some decisions to make. You know, uh, you know, our our friend uh, Maureen Ryan had a big eight thousand word expose on what happened on All Rise with former showrunner and creator Greg Spottiswood. That's you can read that over on Salon. It's an excellent, uh, well reported story with extensive uh, sourcing. Um, but yeah, CBS still has has decisions. The Unicorn is still on the bubble that they own that show that I'm surprised that it's on the bubble. Um, and then you've got some of the Chuck Lorre stuff, Be Positive, United States of Al. I keep hearing that that Be Positive may have the edge there, but that's obviously you've got kind of a problematic star who faced some allegations earlier this year. And Clarice is still on the bubble, which is surprising. Um, I keep hearing SEAL Team may be back for a final season. But yeah, lot, lots of decisions that CBS still has to make. And they've only really picked up a few things. So like I said, new CSI, new FBI, new NCIS, and then they have the single camera comedy ghosts uh, picked up. So still a lot to come at CBS. Stay tuned. We will discuss much, much more of this next week. 
Yeah. And in the meantime, be sure to stay tuned to THR's live feed blog for the latest renewals, pickups, cancellations, and analysis. Um, you can bookmark THRfeed.com, as I'm sure this segment is probably already out of date. So yeah. In the meantime, I'll keep my renewal scorecard and pilot grid as up to date in the coming days as possible. Number two. Up next, the Ellen DeGeneres show will end its run next year after 19 seasons. In an interview with THR, the beleaguered host said she wasn't challenged by the show anymore. The news of the final season follows a BuzzFeed News expose that detailed allegations of a toxic workplace with producers Warner Brothers ousting several key executives. Ratings for the new season, which opened with the host offering an apology, hit an all-time low. Ellen's departure, rumors of which first surfaced in January, comes after she told THR she previously wanted to end the show after season 16, but signed a new deal for three more years, knowing that that would probably very much likely, almost certainly mark the end of her run. Dan, not really a surprise, but still big news nonetheless. It is definitely large news. It is not as large news as it might have been a couple of years ago. I, I think definitely this shifted into the realm of inevitability last year. And yeah, definitely Alan has been making the rounds, uh, starting with, with THR, but then with her Today interview where she's pretty much made it clear that this has absolutely nothing to do with the allegations about the toxic work environment on the show. Um, and the TV interview she did made it very clear that she feels as if she has been a victim of something. Uh, she specifically referenced misogyny, and that's something. And and like everyone else, she sort of is insinuating cancel culture has something to do with it. Uh, you know, once the trainer of the horse that wins the Kentucky Derby is alleging that his horse was the victim of cancel culture, pretty much everyone's just throwing out cancel culture out there without any bleeping meaning whatsoever. So why should Ellen DeGeneres be any different? Uh, yeah, nope. Did, what, what are you going to say? If she insists that it's not because there were, there were longstanding reports of a toxic work environment on her show that she knew absolutely nothing about and had nothing to do with and contributed to in no way whatsoever, then who are we to not believe that that is exactly the truth? Because. Yeah, she's she's just a victim. Um, no, I I got nothing else. She can she can do whatever she wants. It's not like these allegations truly came out of nowhere. People had heard these things before, and if she wants to pretend that this was not a real thing or not a thing that she had any responsibility over or not a thing that has impacted the way that Hollywood and audiences view her, then that is completely and totally within her rights to feel that way. And yeah, I I got. Nothing other than that. Yeah, I'm I, you know, look, she's always going to be an important person in for me personally, mostly just because when she came out on her show, on her scripted comedy show and, and, and said the yep, I'm gay and did the Time magazine cover. That was a defining moment for the LGBTQ community. And, and for me, I was just coming out at the time and to see someone on TV who looked like me and who struggled like me. I mean, that's. The, that's the value of art. You know, we've talk, I've talked about that a lot and I always will. But that said, you know, that Kevin Hart interview that she did just, yeah, I lost a lot of respect there. But that doesn't matter. The bigger question here is, it, is Ellen's, you know, pending exit opens up a new question of who 
Warners will tap to fill the daytime void should the studio, which is under new president Channing Dungey, wish to build a new show around another talent. Dan, I don't know if you have any suggestions, but, you know, the Internet has been great in suggesting, you know, I don't know if Nisi Nash already has a show. You know, there's been some chatter about Kristen Bell. It comes down to who wants to do it would be the first thing. Everyone's already just saying give the slot to uh, to Kelly Clarkson and and that's fine. It's look, it is a tough thing to do, the daytime thing. It is it is not one that everyone can do in terms of quality, in terms of rhythms. I think that there is probably without any question a shift in how people actually view daytime TV in the past 15 months because how could there not be? I don't have the numbers for that, but I do think Someone does, and they know if there's been a demographic shift in what the audience is that's watching daytime TV at this at this point, given that many people have spent, you know, 15 months at home. But also, similarly, many people have spent 15 months basically homeschooling their children and working from home. It's basically all of the rhythms of everyday life, rhythms that were entrenched in how daytime TV was set up for 70 years suddenly are a little bit different. And so I think that will be taken into consideration. It look, it's not a it's not a time slot that I watch very often. If someone passes along a good clip of Kelly Clarkson, I'll watch it. If someone passes along a clip of Drew Barrymore, I'll watch it. If someone passes along an Ellen clip, I have been known to watch it. You know, I will I will always be there for Ellen Kristen Bell and a sloth. You know, that kind of stuff is always gonna amuse me. Uh, yeah, but I, I am not deeply invested in what they do at the slot, but I will be curious to see what they do because Ellen was an example of a show that worked in daytime. And there have been so many examples of shows that didn't work in the past 15 years. So, you, yeah. you, and it's you, also an example of, of, again, going back to my, my, my point a few minutes ago is you're bringing part of the community into people's homes. And, you know, as Harvey Milk once said, if they know us, they can't discriminate against us. And, that will always have value. And I I would love to see that. You know, that's why I think it's so it's so wonderful to see what NBCU is doing, tapping Laverne Cox to host the red carpet coverage. That's a great, great move for for diversity and inclusion and visibility. It's it's fantastic. So I, I would love to see something like that happen here. But again, Ellen leaves, you know, ha, has made a big mark. And obviously this show helped, you know, restore her career after that, you know, when she came out, she suffered. Her career suffered. You know, our, our colleague, Lacey Rose, who did the interview with Ellen this week, had a great cover story years ago with Ellen about the struggles that that she faced after she came out. And it, look, the world's a different place now. So, no, I, I definitely think that the uh, Laverne Cox news from E! was very interesting. But I think it was also interesting that they made the specific announcement and about Laverne Cox starting in January, just as this very week, one of the most important things that happens in January that requires red carpet coverage, let's just say it vanished from the schedule. I'm going to call that a transition. Number three. Up third, NBC has dropped the Golden Globes and will not air the award show in 2022. The network said in a statement this week that the HFPA needs time to create meaningful reform and assuming the group can execute said change has left the door open to air the show in January 2023. Dan, the move comes despite the HFP announcing a slew of potential reforms that were slammed as, quote, window dressing platitudes by Time's Up 
and which prompted Netflix and Warner Media and Amazon and others to distance themselves from the Hollywood foreign press. And, you know, not to be without a headline of his own, Tom Cruise also returned his three Golden Globes win, uh, trophies, which he said were tarnished, right? So, yeah, lot, lots going on here, Dan. Suck it to him, Tom Cruise. That, you know, the great determination. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. Look, it, honestly, this is all just sort of silliness and silliness of timing. Um, and nothing should be taken away from the people who are making the stands that they're making. If Tom Cruise wants to make a definitive statement and return his Golden Globes, that is an entirely legitimate thing for him to do. And if... Netflix was able to basically set this last step in motion by announcing last week that they were not going to be involved with anything HFPA related in this moment. That is completely and totally an admirable thing for Netflix to do. One would say without any question or compunction that this is also a thing that Netflix could have done when the initial LA Times report came out, which was before the Golden Globes, when Netflix was figuring, ooh, we could win Golden Globes for Emily in Paris and Ratchet. And they did win for uh, for the crown. But, you know, that's somewhat more legitimate because the crown's going to win everything. But anyway, Netflix was significantly less invested in the illegitimacy of the Golden Globes and the HFPA when they were still hoping to win awards. And this is about the safest time that they could have made that announcement. They could have they could have basically crippled the Golden Globes entirely if in February after that story came out, they've said we're not going to have any of our talent. Yeah, participating. yeah they were the most nominated outlet. Yeah. Dan. All they all they had to say was none of the people from the crown are, are going to be on your damn Zoom feed and none of the people from Emily in Paris are going to be involved. We are disgusted with you. We're not playing ball. And if they had simply said that at that time, probably NBC and Dick Clark Productions, which uh, is uh, owned by a subsidiary of something or other, which is our part of our parent company. If you want to read the whole thing, that's fine. Um, yeah, probably there would have been heavy pushback from certain corporate entities that needed the Golden Globes to happen this year. But even still, the time for the genuine backbone statement was immediately after the L.A. Times report. This is still meaningful, and it did push NBC to make a decision that NBC clearly did not want to make and was not going to make on its own. NBC was going to require pushing to actually do this. And even having been pushed and even having announced it's not happening next year, they still left the door open for the year after. But why I've said this, I think, three weeks in a row now. What is the purpose of keeping this thing alive? Find something different and better. What do you think you will have proven by making a group of junket whores more diverse? That will not make the industry better. It will make a group of junket whores more diverse. Muzzletov, there are bigger problems and bigger issues at stake and bigger things that NBC could do and bigger points NBC could make. This is completely and totally symbolic relating to a group of junket whores who give out awards to drunk celebrities. Why can we not find a better thing? <laughs> well said, Dan. I mean, the bigger thing here is, you know, this is the Golden Globes are a marketing event. It's also a push for NBC to get more ad revenue for more because live events traditionally draw bigger audiences. That obviously hasn't been the case during the pandemic as award shows continue to hit low after low after low. But it's also, you know, this has been 
far from a typical year because most people aren't watching the same thing with streaming. You know, the, a lot of movies you know, weren't out theatrically. It was a lot harder to find this content and watch it because you had to be subscribed to, the, to this or buy this, et cetera. But, you know, the, the point remains, Dan, and I think we got a great mailbag question about this from listener Greg, is what value do these awards have? Not just going forward, but looking back, you know, does this tarnish every honoree, every past winner? What do you think? I I think that the awards continue to have whatever value they had anyway. I think having a Golden Globe always puts you in the esteemed company of Pia Zadora, and that was something that having that Golden Globe always meant. You hear countless interviews with different celebrities where people ask them where they keep their Oscar or where they keep their Emmy. I have never in my entire life heard an interview with someone where they asked anyone where they kept their Golden Globe. So I think that if people valued their Golden Globes before, they will continue to because you will hear a lot of people over their dinner parties when their guest looks at the Golden Globe and goes, oh, Golden Globe, they'll rationalize it in various ways like, oh, well, I got my Golden Globe back when things were legitimate, or I got my Golden Globe back before we knew, or even some people with their Golden Globes this year will be like, oh, I got the last damn Golden Globe. That's something. Um, but I think plenty of people already knew that their Golden Globes were vaguely ridiculous or a nice thing because it's always nice to get recognized. It's good to win trophies. We, and it's good to make more money, Dan. Most of the time when you win an award, it triggers an, a, a salary increase or a bonus of some sort, or it makes you more marketable as a star. Or if your show or your movie wins, there's a direct revenue correlation in it's you suddenly get a new round of, of promotion and, you know, Golden Globe winner, you know, stream it here, watch now, whatever. You know, it's the same stuff. You know, it all comes down to money. And I, and I don't think that suddenly we're going to see people stop referring to actors or shows that haven't won other things as Golden Globe winners or Golden Globe nominees. But I, I feel like it was already the case that if you were a publicist and your client was a Golden Globe nominee, but also an Emmy nominee, that you would refer to them as Emmy nominee. And if they were an Oscar nominee and a Golden Globe nominee, you would refer to them as Oscar nominee. I do not think that will change, and I don't think that anyone who is a Golden Globe nominee but has not been nominated for anything else is suddenly going to remove that line from their bio. I, I, oh, yeah. I would you should see some of the bios, Dan, <laughs> that, that, that we get for, for castings. And it's like, this person won this, this, you know, was nominated for this award that you've never heard of or won something at this film festival that counts, you know, that, that you know, it serves a population of six. Yeah, some, some of these bios are like paragraphs long with like awards that you know, and Golden Globes are always really high up in, in, in that list. But yeah, sec always second to Emmy and Oscar, et cetera. But then there are still funny things like uh, like the Dan Stevens casting that we mentioned earlier. Uh, the press release about that casting referred to him as SAG Award winner because he was part of the cast of uh, Downton Abbey, obviously, but also referred to him as Teen Choice Award winner. And Exactly. Is, and this is not to say that Dan Stevens is not a Teen Choice Award winner, but I feel like Dan Stevens and who and what he is stands alone without the recognition that he's a Teen Choice Award winner. 
And I don't know that Dan Stevens being a Teen Choice Award winner is particularly a meaningful thing to note in a press release about Dan Stevens being cast in a movie set in 1972. So, yeah, but I'm also not going to include that someone's a Teen Choice winner in, in my coverage of a casting. No matter who it is, it is it is or still no matter, a, even if, even if it's a CW show, I'm not going to mention as a Teen Choice Award. It is still it's a just, funny thing. Know, so yeah, but go, but going back to going back to Greg's basic question, which is, does this make every Golden Globe worthless or not worthless? I would simply say no more or less than before. Anyone who puts stock in it puts stock in it with some awareness of what was going on. Regardless, there was never a point at which, really and truly, the HFPA and the Golden Globes were legit. Well, up next, Dan, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Number four. Our guests this week are the three creators of HBO Max's new comedy hacks. Lucia and Yellow and Paul W. Downs are longtime professional and personal partners, having worked together on projects including Broad City, Time Traveling Bong, and the other two. Jen Statsky also wrote on Broad City and more recently was a writer and producer on NBC's The Good Place. Welcome to the podcast, Paul, Lucia, and Jen. Thank you all all for joining us. I think this is our, what, our, Dan, our, our second trio of showrunners on the show? Yes, this is our second threesome, so... Wow, not the first, <laughs> not your first threesome, I'm sad. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I would frame it in the best way humanly possible. And, uh, and just for clarity's sake, let's have, have all, uh, you guys introduce yourself just so our listeners can get to know your voices before we dive into Hacks. Sure, uh, my name is Lucia Aniello. I'm Jen Statsky. And I am Paul Downs. So let, let's start with the beginning of the show, the three of you previously worked together on Comedy Central's Broad City, but how did this collaboration for Hacks come together? As, as the man, I guess I'll speak first. Is that good? <laughs> um, yeah, we worked um, on Broad City together, but also um, Jen and Lucia were actually in a sketch group together many moons before that. Yeah. Um, and Lucia and I had been working together. We all worked on Broad City together. And then since then, we've written scripts together, and um, Jen was on set for our movie Rough Night, and also um, was on set for my episode of The Characters on Netflix, and we were actually um, on our way to a Monster Jam truck rally uh, in Portland, Maine, when this idea came to us five years ago. So we really have Monster Jam in a, in a way to thank for this story about two women. Which I feel like has not been said on the on this pod, before, you know, it's probably been said many times. You know. <laughs> it's it's one of those classic Hollywood stories, yes. I believe. Is uh... <laughs> yeah, all roads lead to Monster Jam. Yeah, <laughs> all shows lead. Yeah, um, and then you know the show is executive produced from Mike Schur, uh, who's been a guest on our show before. Obviously, Parks and Rec, The Good Place, and so many other things. But how did he wind up getting involved? Obviously, not someone uh, who who worked on Broad City with you guys. Yeah, Mike. So I worked on Parks and Rec and The Good Place um, for so I'd worked with Mike for many years. And 
when we had this idea and we started talking about developing it, um, we just brought it to Mike to produce. Um, and yeah, he he very enthusiastically was like, I love it. Let's do it. And that's kind of kind of how that happened. And when you guys were pitching this, was it always intended to take it to HBO Max? I mean, Mike is based at, at Universal, so his home base would be NBC or or Peacock now. Well, it actually is a Universal show project. Right. Um, but no, we, we pitched it pretty wide and uh, didn't really necessarily have uh, a location in mind when we pitched it because, you know, uh, the story is largely about a older woman and the comedy world. And, you know, I think for us, we were like, instead of being like, oh, here's where we want it to land for us, it was really important that we're like, we want somebody who, or a location where we just felt like understood what it was because we were pretty, like Paul had said, we'd come up with this like, I mean, five years ago, over five years ago. And so for us, we've been working on it, you know, here and there in between other projects for a long time. So it's one that's been like so close to our hearts and it was like our baby for so long. And so for us, it was like really important that it landed somewhere where we felt like the executive or executives really got it um, because we were just not really willing to change it too much. <laughs> and so when we pitched it to um, Susanna Makos at HBO Max, she like in the middle of the meeting, like basically in a way almost like interrupted our pitch to continue to pitch the show. And we were like, <laughs> yes, exactly that. And she really understood it. And, you know, we really went arm in arm from the very first moment and, it was, it's been an incredibly seamless process in terms of like, you know, they've been great with feedback, but it always felt like we were on the same page the whole time. And so for us, it's been a really awesome experience. I know that, you know, they're a new streamer, but for us, they, it felt like, I don't know, it felt like the kind of place where you wish you'd get to make a show because they really just understood our vision and have supported it completely the whole way. Yeah. It's so rare. Like you pitch things to networks, you develop with them and you're just like hoping they get it and hoping they don't try to change it too much. And like what she said from the beginning, Susanna, just like she got it and she was immediately like, Oh, have you read Debbie Reynolds? Uh, but you got a biography, you got to read that. I'm going to send it to you. And she sent it to us. And like, just to have someone be on the same page with you from the minute you pitch it all throughout developing it to the moment it's on air is it's such a gift. And I think we're also lucky that we have people um, like Sarah Aubrey and Casey Blois who also really understood the show because I think that can happen where one person is a champion, but then, you know, the show gets changed or developed. But we, we've been very lucky in having a lot of people really understand what we wanted to do and support us along the way. Now, as Lucia said, uh, the premise is that it's about, the show is about a millennial comic who finds herself, through various circumstances, working for a legendary Vegas comic. And I feel like the uh, the immediate antecedent that people are going to have for Gene Smart's Deborah Vance is probably going to be a waspier version of Joan Rivers. Um, but that's interesting. I feel like that's what people are going to say. But you did just mention Debbie Reynolds also. So I guess I'm curious, who is, to your mind, in the DNA of that famous legendary comic? Well, yeah, that's a great question. I think we always wanted this to be representative of a kind of larger-than-life character that we, we drew on, she's an amalgamation of many people. Um, there's some Phyllis Diller. There's definitely Elaine May. Um, in the show, you learn that she started her career with a stage show with her husband. Um, there's some Lucille Ball, because then she had a sitcom. Um, there's obviously some Joan Rivers and some Phyllis Diller. Um, but there's also Debbie Reynolds, who was someone who, you know, whether it was a husband that stole her money or a business manager who cheated her or, you know, um, one of the many ways she was knocked down. Um, there are a lot of these sort of veteran entertainers and really women in the arts in general um, who have been cast aside for one reason or another. And so we really wanted it to be 
definitely a portrait of that kind of a person, more so than drawing too much on any one individual. And we see a lot of Deborah's stand-up here, both her current Vegas routine, but also her 80s and 90s stand-up, her TV material over the decades. What are the challenges of not just attempting to write stand-up for a fictional character, but of doing the stand-up through the decades process to writing? Yeah, that, I mean, that was definitely a, a huge challenge. I think, of course, because we have a certain point of view and experience. And also, you know, we we had to, I think, in a way, study both the structure of how jokes may have been done then as well as now. And also we had to kind of thread the needle of her jokes now being good, but still a bit tired. And then then being good and a little bit fresher, but you can still see the like line like that was drawn between them because still her point of view and her voice. So it was definitely something that we, I mean, a lot of drafts, a lot of jokes, a lot of pitches. That was something that we really, really wanted to get right. Um, and you know, especially writing for somebody like Gene Smart. Gene is an incredibly funny comedic performer. I mean, like truly, I mean, I don't need to announce it to the world. The world knows. But, um, <laughs> but she also is so capable of bringing her own spin even to her stand-up, which is so interesting. Like we sometimes would, you know, have a joke in uh, like, let's say in the finale or something where she like, we would literally discuss like the intonations, the inflections, the timing, the moment. And she just had such a like understanding of how she would do it as the character, which I feel like comedians who've been working decades don't even always know how to, they would do it or they practice it, they do it. But she's like, no, this is how Deborah would do it. And, and she's, she's totally right. And so I think it just speaks to her ability to be so like in her shoes as an actor and as a performer. And so in the moment, just so in, yeah, like she's just so confident in her choices because she really spends a time thinking about the character, understanding character, understanding the point of view. And I mean, God, God, I love her. So God, I love that woman. While we're on the topic of Jean <laughs> Smart, was, was she always in your mind who you wrote this role for, or was she always number one on your must have list? What was the casting process like? You know, the only person who we really wrote a role for was Caitlin Olson. We really love Caitlin and, and had written with her in mind, but, um, as we mentioned, um, we thought of the idea five years ago, and I think Jean would appreciate me saying she might have been too young five years ago. Um, and we sort of had this, you know, idea of the character. But I will say, once we actually got to the process of the show being pitched and then bought, um, and we thought about the kind of person we wanted to play it, um, we wanted someone who could bring both, you know, the comedy and be a believable stand-up, but also somebody who could do the more dramatic, more emotional, more heartfelt moments. And that list to us, um, th at the very top of that list, was Jean. Um, she's someone we've loved, um, not only in comedy roles from Designing Women to Frasier, um, but also recently so many incredible turns in dramatic stuff that we were like, I mean, she would be the dream. And thank God we tricked her into it. <laughs> yeah. No one likes to say the word blackmail, but <laughs> it's a cut. It's a tough industry. You know, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> but in all honesty, how did you guys pitch the project to her? And what were her what were her questions, comments, concerns to feel comfortable wanting to do this? In all honesty, blackmail. <laughs> uh, no, we, so yeah, we, you know, we, as Paul said, she was at the top of our list and we sent the script uh, to her reps and 
Luckily, she responded to it and wanted to have a meeting. And then, yeah, the three of us and Mike just sat down with her and just had a really great conversation about the character. And, you know, she said this in interviews, but she said to us in that meeting, she was like, there's no way you could have known this. But like as a kid, as a like I went to a costume party dressed up as Phyllis Diller. Like it's been a dream of mine to be a stand up comedian. And we were like, great. So you're doing it, right? <laughs> um, and yeah, she just, you know, she's such, like Lucia was saying, she's such an incredible actor and you can tell she comes from theater because she, she really reads the scripts in a way that is such a um, delight for a writer and such a, a wonderful thing. And so she just, you know, had questions about different aspects of her life and how much we would be showing off stage versus on stage and just kind of the normal questions that any, you know, smart uh, actor would bring to it. And then, and then, yeah, she signed on shortly after that meeting. It was a great learning moment for me because normally I just read my lines and I thought, no, she's really diving in. She's asking a lot of good questions. I got to do this in my generals. Yeah. <laughs> we also, I, we, there's obviously a Cheesecake Factory joke in the pilot and, and we did talk Cheesecake Factory in our favorite dish and we both like the avocado egg rolls and the pasta da Vinci. So I think that, I think that helped a great deal. Yeah. With a menu that big, if you can land on Kismet on a fame for meal, that's, that's exactly right. You need to pick out the same menu item from the Cheesecake Factory. You need to marry that person. It <laughs> makes it so much. It makes it so much easier when you go out to dinner. You know, knowing that culinarily you're on the same page, exactly. it just makes the work that much more delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so seen right now. <laughs> so well. At the same time, you know, you know, casting the role of Ava and you just, you know, and casting Hannah in that role, which seems like, you know, capturing a 25 year old who's been canceled by the Internet, who at really at the outset of her career. What were you looking for as you began that casting process? Well, you know, we really, uh, I think, tried to very we wanted the show to be very grounded and very real. And we wanted to show a character that had a, a place to go and some growth and some learning to do. Um, and so it was really important to us um, to make sure we were able to both show her shortcomings and the mistakes she made, but also show someone who had an undercurrent of vulnerability and a likability. And um, we saw a lot of really talented actors. Um, and Hannah, from her, from her first read, was just really interesting to us because she delivered the line. She has a sense of timing that's different than anyone else that read. Um, and she also was someone that I, I think she just had an inherent likability to us that we were like, oh, this is good because we can give her a role that initially I think, um, as I said, she has, she has some growing to do and you can still be on her side and root for her and see that, you know, she doesn't have the best situation in the world. Um, and yeah, we were just really impressed that she had never acted before. It was truly crazy. Um, <laughs> And also the fact that she's a real stand-up and she is a comedian and she is 25. She just really, you know, in so many ways was the character to us that she just was able to elevate. I should say also in her callback, I was reading with her um, in the, the scene with Jimmy, her manager. And I was looking down and Jen and Lucia and Mike sure all laughed really loud while I was reading a line. I thought, wow, I'm good. Whatever I just <laughs> did was really good. But what I missed was... Hannah had pulled out a vape and did like a huge plume of smoke, but I was looking down, <laughs> reading my lines, thinking the laughter was for me. I only learned later that she had done this just perfectly specific character thing 
um, that we all really loved. She just was really, she really got it. And ended up in the final cut. She does hit that vape pen right yeah. after talking about getting fingered, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if anyone was on the line, if anybody, any listeners go, should I check it out? I think now, you know, you got to. <laughs> if those things are interesting to you, and I hope they are. <laughs> I mean, she never acted before, but she has this in her DNA to some degree, obviously. Is that the, is, had you known about her parentage before when you brought her in, or was it a surprise? We had truly no, I don't think we knew until like she was testing. Honestly, like we didn't yes. know like till way, way down, you know, we Googled her at that stage and we were like, oh, oh shit, crazy. <laughs> but yeah, we had no, you know, these actors, they just, especially during COVID, you just get like, 30 audition tapes a day and it's just them on their tape and you're like, okay, I'm going to watch the, this. And so, yeah, we had no idea about, about that part of her life. Yeah. I don't even know if she had ever read for Jeannie McCarthy's office before. You know what I mean? I don't even know if, if they were familiar with her parentage. Um, you know, it was really, it was, it was a surprise. I don't feel like we necessarily need to be coy about it. Lorraine Newman is her mother, so <laughs> but but we're being all hinting as if we have yeah. money invested in the her Google mother, search results. Kellyanne Conway, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should just good for her. Good for her. You you know why she's using a different name after yeah. all? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now. How much, when did you decide that you wanted the thing that laid that character low to be this particular moment of online notoriety? And and how did you decide how much you really wanted this to be about cancel culture and all of the stuff that we're talking about all the time on the Twitter? Right. I think, I think that was something for us that um, it is such a rich and interesting phenomenon and topic, but there are so many hundreds of think pieces about it that we were, it was something for us that was merely a device to force these two unlikely characters together. Um, because really we were interested in exploring the generational divide between these women, um, not only from a comedy perspective, but also just from a, a perspective of two different kinds of women who come from two different waves of feminism. Um, and also I think because we were really, we came at it from, from Deborah. Deborah was the, you know, sort of genesis for the idea. Um, we really wanted to explore what it's like for women in comedy and entertainment and to be honest, really women in the arts at large who are so often cast aside or forgotten or never even noticed when so many of their male counterparts are acclaimed. So um, that for us was, it was kind of just a device to get them together. I think you're right though, like it is such a topic so hotly debated on Twitter and in think pieces and stuff and like the truth is, is like it, this was never meant to be our statement on quote unquote cancel culture. It's really much more about women being cast aside. And that is a, a tradition that goes far before cancel culture. Like only did it become cancel culture, quote unquote, when truthfully, I think it started happening to like white, straight, cis male men. Like women and other marginalized groups have had to deal with accountability for years and years before this. Heard and about so, the Salem witch trials? Yeah, this, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they weren't screaming cancel culture on the pyre, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, we were just and burning so them we, at the stake, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I think for us, it, it's much more, you know, you see it 
as the series develops, that Deborah was another person who was unfairly cast aside. And so we were much more interested in looking at it from a historical perspective of how this happens to women in the arts, which which predates cancel culture by quite a bit, even though, yes, that is the device that gets Ava into Deborah's orbit in the pilot. But even the idea of cancel culture wasn't really the same when we first originally thought of this idea five years ago. It was a totally different world, yet now there's a word for it because it's happening to men. But then it was just like, this is just what happens. But when, as you're talking about, you know, how this is, you know, obviously been something that's been happening to women for years and decades here, especially in Hollywood, um, what kind of research did you do when you were, as you were writing it and developing the series? Like, who did you talk to? Did you talk to any of these famous comedians or, you know, what else did you do to, to, uh, to prepare? Well, we had a really um, we had a really great consulting producer, Janice Hirsch, um, who's a woman who um, has written in many, many, many writers' rooms and was a woman in comedy um, in a time when it was very much even more so a boys' club. Um, she was someone who I think really gave us great insight into what it was like in you know the seventies and eighties and nineties. Um, we also, all three of us, worked with um, Susie Essman, who played Alana's mom on Broad City. And so, you know, just hearing her war stories on set and um, appreciating her for such a long time, I think that was another touchstone for us. Yeah. And Janice, actually, I mean, it was in The Hollywood Reporter, but she was someone so so it's it's public. But like she was someone who worked on a show where a a like coworker of hers, like put his penis on her shoulder. And that was like something that just happened in the writer's room when she was a writer. And then the next day she was fired. So so it's like that perspective of women who have been working in comedy like this for years and years that we were very interested in exploring. How did you decide what it was going to be that Ava was going to say that was going to get her canceled? That, that was also something that went through a million drafts because we wanted it to be something that, um, you know, there could be some outrage about that people could take offense to, but also wasn't, uh, but we wanted her target to be correct, we wanted her to be punching up and trying to call out hypocrisy and speak truth to power, even though she kind of involved a child in the tweet and also outed somebody in the tweet. You know, we wanted to make it, it's a very, very delicate line um, because we wanted to make it believable, but also not something where you were like, well, this girl is clearly evil. <laughs> so um, that was something that, that we had a bunch of drafts of and, and kind of carefully considered. And again, like we said, we, we really wanted it to be something that while grounded, wasn't going to be um, her actual flaw. You know, in the pilot, she see, she meets a friend at a cafe, uh, and her friend says to her, I know this seems like the worst thing in the world, but it's really not. You know, just to sort of, like, acknowledge to the audience that um, it wasn't the worst thing in the world, and maybe this girl has some place to go and some learning to do. Um, so we did want it to be, as we said, the inciting incident, but we, we really wanted it to be the means to tell a story about the redemption of a character like Deborah Vance. Also, it seems like you wanted to make it clear that while that might have been kind of the tipping point, that there were the other parts of her personality that were maybe causing, That's <laughs> that exactly were maybe putting right. things in motion before then. Yeah, yeah. And for us, that that, that might be a symptom of a, of a larger ill for the character. And that that ill is really the thing that she needs healing. And, and perhaps through her relationship with Deborah, that's really the thing that we're focusing on. But along those lines, you know, you talked about all of the various inspirations for uh, Deborah's character. I assume you would probably just as soon not get into who people are going to try to compare Ava to. 
Well, Ava is us, you know, we are Ava. <laughs> we are 25 and we yeah. are just good at yeah. our jobs. And one of her jokes in the pilot, we've sorry, we've said before, which is I had a horrible nightmare. I got a voicemail because we do think that's funny because it is horrible to get a voicemail, you know, <laughs> where Deborah thinks that's not a joke. We think it is. So yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we, Ava is very much so an amalgamation of the three of us. Like, you know, it, it, she's close to our age. And, and, yeah. Us at, our, us at our worst, the worst parts of us. Yeah, exactly. So what, you know, when it comes to the, the relationships that you guys have had and the, and the mentorships, um, I'm wondering, you know, have any of you guys had a relationship like what's depicted here in the series? And end with who? Yeah, I wish I could really out Mike Sure as being like a horrible boss and like <laughs> shake the comedy world from the ground up. But uh, no, I, I've I've only been lucky enough to have like with Mike, for example, a very like loving, productive, uh, nurturing mentorship. Um, I think also all of us coming from Broad City and having done a Bright Citizens Brigade, I think we see Amy Poehler as a mentor, but again, she was not abusive, never left us in the desert for dead. <laughs> uh, yeah, they say yeah, don't meet your I idols her. unless your idol is Amy Poehler. And then it's, you know what, why don't you? It's a very pleasant <laughs> <Yeah>. experience. <laughs> to make her laugh is an amazing experience. I recommend it to anybody who can. <laughs> yeah. I certainly had bad bosses, but I didn't learn. Oh, a yeah. I didn't learn a damn thing from them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you guys have been talking along those lines, and especially if Ava is kind of an amalgamation of you, but within a story where you're kind of talking about these relationships within an industry you know so well, how much room is there for bringing in personal autobiographical details, whether it's something as, you know, big as experiences you've had or just a debate between Papaginos and Bertucci's? <laughs> <laughs> That is very personal, and I am Team Papaginos, and I will stand by that for till the day I die. I spent a summer working at Papaginos uh, okay. before college, so. Well, how uh, was your how was your boss at Papaginos? Was <laughs> she a Deborah? Yeah. Uh, part of the problem was that my boss at Papaginos was one of my good friends who had worked there the entire time, and he basically got all of us jobs at the same Papaginos nice. for the same summer. So it was. What's, uh, what, what's that kid's name? We got to shout that kid out. Yes. Shout out, shout out to Sean Marion for keeping me employed for one summer of a, a very bad. Go Sean. You got to have a Sean Marion in your life, man. So is so is that just Jen's particular debate or do Paul, Paul and Lucia, do you guys have that? She and I are both from Massachusetts. So the Papaginos Bertucci's, but well, Lucia, I'll let you answer. But my parents owned a pizza place in Amherst, Massachusetts. So you better believe I actually wanted to cut it entirely because I don't want to support either chain. <laughs> I actually fully wanted to say, I don't believe in this. I believe we should always be supporting small businesses. Lucia and I heated, heated we did the debate this. And they were like, it's funny. I was like, eh, free advertising. I don't believe it. <laughs> it spoke to me. So if I'm only one person, at least you no, have one no, person I know, to And that's what spoke. Jen said. And I'm sorry, but I'm just, I, I'm an immigrant. I can't help it. <laughs> but in general, how much of you guys and your experiences is there room for here? Well, it's, it's so different than something like Broad City, where every single story and every single episode the germ of the idea came from an experience one of us had. Whereas this show, especially because it is this Las Vegas show and it's about this larger than life comedian, there's not as much um, autobiographical stuff in it. I, I mean, 
There is, there is in the second episode, they do go to an antique shop, which I have to say, all three of us love very much, and it's in Pasadena. And so we were very happy to be able to actually shoot there. So that's autobiographical. Um, I don't know. Is there, what is there's there? A, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, in terms of like her being like the diva cup stuff or constantly wanting to tell her mom that she doesn't believe in God, like things like yeah. that, are, I think, are yeah, very Yeah, that's what she, uh, <laughs> she can't swim. That's me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot of details that are pulled from all of us. But in terms of like story moods, it, there's not a ton there because, yeah, like none of us have had an experience working for someone like Deborah. Well, we, as we said, though, we did blackmail Gene Smart. So I guess we have some Deborah in us as well. Because as you know, Deborah yeah, does do some blackmail. Really yeah. I will say, I don't want to, I don't want to age myself, but I, I, I think I may be more a Deborah than an Ava. I think maybe Jen and Lucia are the yes, Avas. Yes, you are the Deborah, Deborah. we're the Avas. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's the alpha male for you. You know, <laughs> real alpha male. Me yeah. and Gene. We, that's, why, that's why we bonded so much. Yeah. Yes. But you do have a bond. So... Going back, going back to the writing of Deborah and Ava's material, you know, comedies about comedy are very, very tough. And for every 30 Rock, you get a Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. So how did you guys decide the tone that you wanted to have when the two leading ladies aren't wisecracking? Yeah, I mean, that's something we really always wanted to make sure that even though it is a show that the backdrop is comedy and the setting is comedy and she has this residency, that we didn't want to get too in the weeds and too inside baseball about the setup, the punchline. I mean, of course we talk about it and it, and it, it exists. And a lot of the show is really, I think, behind the curtain of why these women need to tell their jokes, where they're at psychologically, that they needed comedy in their lives and for very different reasons and a lot of the same reasons, um, just which you'll get to, but, um, <laughs> later in the season, but, um, you know, we also, it was very important to us that it was really like very grounded and felt like as much as it's like hard comedy that is always about something else. And it, to us, it's about, there's so many things that it's about, but you know, there's like the mother, they both have interesting mother daughter relationships in their own lives and a bit of it, um, a lack of connection there allows them to kind of find a connection within each other. There's a lot, as we said, about kind of these two women have, who have been cast aside in general and find themselves kind of on the fringes of society. And, and those things are also, of course, about comedy, but they're also not. And so for us, it's like, like I said, it's really about this, the places that these women are at psychologically and what it means to need comedy and to need each other and their deficiencies as a result. Yeah. And I, I, I'll just add that, like, I think I think one of the reasons that sometimes shows that dissect comedy, it's difficult to pull off is exactly what Lucia is pointing at, which is it's all about the technical, but you don't know why these characters do it. You don't know what's driving them to do it, which is really at the end of the day what you care about. You care about, well, why do they want to be good at this? What makes them this way? And both of these characters have... Uh, like Lucia said, they have some deficiencies in their relationships. They have a lot of like pain and trauma, which is explored later in the season. And so that's what drives them to do this. It's about the why they do it, not the specific how do they do it. Sure, that comes up, but I think you need to have that as the heart and the backbone. And if you don't have that, it's just a show where it's like reading Ikea instructions about comedy. And that's not anything anyone wants no. to watch. I'm like, tell me about the Swedish people. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. How do they make these meatballs? You know, yeah. no. Why do they make these meatballs? Why do they make the meatballs? <laughs> well, the meatballs I actually wouldn't mind the recipe for. They're pretty good. <laughs> now, without spoiling it, the show goes to a very dark place in the middle of the season. Um, I- I'm curious when you're doing a show that is primarily a comedy, how conscious do you have to be of earning? a detour into darkness as dark as where you guys go. We were very conscientious about, um, about the tone. And I think that's one of the reasons why we were so happy to have Gene attached because I think a, in the wrong hands, it might not always work. And I think, um, another thing is, is because we wanted it to feel grounded and we wanted it to feel real. Um, we wanted to make sure that it was never too broad in its comedy or too melodramatic in the moments of sadness. We just really wanted it to feel real. And I think that, you know, in real life, people get sad and people make jokes and especially characters who are built to make jokes allowed us, I think, to do those hard comedy moves. Um, but also then hopefully we were able to explore, especially in Las Vegas, you know, uh, and with the history of these two women, some more darker emotional uh, material. So logistically, how does it impact the delegation of responsibilities here when Lucia is directing every episode and when Paul is a regular piece of the cast? So I actually directed six of them and Paul directed two of them. And um, we had another director, Desiree Akhavan, who came on to do two other ones. But um, generally, the three of us really, you know, have a, a shorthand at this point because we've been in Video Village so much together over the years um, so we, we really do huddle up, um, between takes and, you know, we honestly, a lot of the times we don't even need to discuss a lot of the things cause we all kind of feel the same thing, uh, during, uh, after a take of like, okay, here's the things we need to change. And so sometimes we'll go, yeah, oh, uh, yeah, I got, okay. okay. <laughs> and then I'll just go and, and run or Paul will run or whatever into, to talk to the actors. And because of that, I think it's, it's really, it's, it flows very well because especially because we're such close friends. Um, I mean, Paul and I engage, but, um, <laughs> so it's closer than friends. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, I was like, what? <laughs> but, uh, you know, we really, have I think we also put our friendship first and so because of that I think we're able to make sure that like that stays intact so when we're working together like we all very very much care about the show and very very much care about the project and are some might say control freaks but because (laughs) we're control freaks together and we all agree on the same amount of control and freak we're able to do it really seamlessly and quickly and we love each other and that's my official answer (laughs) (laughs) I, I second that that's correct um I would just add that um I think also it's I'm I'm glad you guys have had another threesome on the pod because it you know in some ways I think show running alone feels very isolating and probably hard and show running with two people might mean there's creative conflict with three. There's always a tiebreaker. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. always great. We do and vote, I, we vote and, all the time. Yeah. And I think also for us, because the show really is also about what it means to have the love language of comedy and creative collaboration and the kind of unique relationship that can be, um, it, it's, it's, it's made it even more personal for us, the show. Um, and I hope that, the love we have for each other and the kindredness that we have for each other can be felt 
in Ava and Deborah? And that's my official answer. I'm gonna, we should end every answer with that is my official answer. <laughs> well, not, not to bring the room down here, but you know, obviously filming a comedy at, at, during a pandemic where you really can't do a, a, a shot where you see them on stage and, and looking out over this crowd and seeing crowd reactions. I, I'm curious how filming during the pandemic changed what you wanted and were able to do. It absolutely sucked ass, Leslie. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we were able to have some crowd. So like, for example, when we shot um, the episode in 103, when they're on the tour bus, we were able to have a tour bus full of people because it was open air. So there were some instances where we were able to have, you know, the full amount of people there. But um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of like, okay, let's shoot this let's shoot this locked off and then let's put a crowd here. Then let's have the crowd move there and let's have the crowd move there to try to like patchwork together some crowd. And then a, a fair amount of VFX work as well um, in some later episodes for some bigger crowd stuff. But you know, it was, it was not ideal, but we made it work. Yeah. It, it does. <laughs> it's like you had to hold every day. The fact that like, Oh, that we're so lucky to be doing this. This is such a privilege with the fact that like Lucia said, it was really difficult. It made everybody's job harder. Like Lucia and Paula's directors, like she's saying, the shots have to be framed a different way. If we're not allowed to have more than 20 extras or, you know, our VFX supervisor, David Neednoggle had so much more on his plate and everyone's job got harder and, and I think at the end of the day, what was really inspiring is that everybody was so nimble and quick on their feet and able to work around the restrictions that COVID gave us, that it was really like a real testament to our wonderful crew and cast that everybody was able to figure out a way around it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a tremendous stress on the process for sure. I mean, that's its own show. show. You know, we should have had, we couldn't have a BTS crew because quite frankly, we couldn't have that many people on set, but had we, it would have been crazy to see oh, shoot, well, um, XYZ person's wife tested positive for COVID, so that person can't come in. We have to now move up what we were going to shoot next week. Can you build it tonight? You know, there were so many crazy, crazy adjustments. Yeah, it was just like, it was whack-a-mole all over the place. Like, you know, one problem would pop up and you'd fix it, and then it creates, you know, five more. And so it was hard. Yes, but our, <laughs> like Jen's saying, our, our crews and our producers were just constantly making it work. And we really never fully had to shut down. And that really is a testament to like the, their nimbleness and willingness to make just make it work and make it happen. And I genuinely feel that if you watch the show, you will have no idea. Yeah. And so should the show be renewed for a second season and knock on wood, it, it, it will be. Could you see a different way of doing this this in season two one, now that there are more vaccines out in the world? And I don't know if it, it'll still be as challenging to film when you guys do go back, maybe, you know, the end of this year, next year. But like, how could you see the show really expanding its scope now that vaccines are a little bit more readily available and it's a little little bit less scary, at least in L.A. right now? A very, I mean, unfortunately, the the, uh, the most boring answer is just that, like, well, yes, we'll have, be able to have more crowds, but the truth is, is just like the amount of money that went into having to like make sure everybody was safe is was a, a fair amount of the budget, and so you know, hopefully, we would able to be able to do like what you're just saying, just more scope and more scale and more locate on location stuff and or shoot an additional just, day. Like, yeah, we you know, have French have out. another day to shoot, and and we could say to Gene. Um, Yes, you can have another take, you know, because we don't have to move so quickly. I think that would be a huge relief. Um, well, we always let Gene do it on our 
We always do. We always do. No, we're not saying no to Chip. You know, you know, they're, you know, they're saying no to for another take. Me. That's that's who. It's like Paul. No, no more, Paul. We that's, got it. I'm like, but I have an idea. I want to improv. Anyway, um, but the other thing I think. Well, I don't want to spoil it, but in the finale there is a throw forward to what would happen in the second season, and I really hope there's no global pandemic because it would be challenging um, what what we lay out. So really hope. That also is the reason I am hoping there is not another global pandemic for season two of Okay, Act. thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Can that be a Hollywood thank Reporter you. pull quote? I would love that. <laughs> um, okay. Lucia mentioned the ability to shoot more on location. How much were you guys actually in Vegas? Was it much at all? Yeah, we shot for about a week in, in Las Vegas. Um, but we did generally, I think over the series, pretty much guys from me, if I'm wrong, three days on, um, on the lot and then two days out a week on average out in LA in various places. Yeah. And what are your respective relationships with Las Vegas? Like, well, I'm a longtime Vegas, uh, lover. I actually eloped there. That's how much I like Vegas. So I, I love Vegas and I've loved it for a very long time. And then Paul and Lucia were introduced to it kind of mostly through this show, right? You know what's crazy? Yeah. The only other time we had been in Vegas was to go to a Monster Jam rally. Another one. <laughs> We've been to two. We've been to we two. And I will say it was to film a sketch for the same character, Jasper Cooch, <laughs> which I'm sure you both are very familiar with my character, Jasper Cooch. Yeah. Uh, big drugs. Big drugs. Oh, man, you did. Big drugs. Anyway, um, so we had been there truly for a Monster Jam. And, uh, you know, a couple other times, but really only for work. For, for canvassing, of course. And for canvassing if we went to, yes, if we went to go canvas. But um, I would say now we are great admirers of the yes. city of Las Vegas. The city welcomed us with open arms. They were so cool and nice and everybody was so awesome. And it's funny now, like driving down, you know, Coenga, like I see like billboards at like, you know, this person's DJing at Dre's and I'm like, oh, cool. Good to know. Like I never <laughs> noticed those billboards before, but now I'm like, okay, now we know. Now we know. <laughs> it's all that billboard on Coenga is always Vegas. It's yes. been, the, it's been that yes. way for years. Always. Always. Yeah. <laughs> well, we do like to end these interviews um, with the same question. What are you guys watching and enjoying right now? I really uh, loved I Hate Susie. Um, and it's something that in the beginning I found challenging. I wasn't sure that I was, I was unsettled by it. And then by the end, I thought it was really brilliant and I really enjoyed it. Um, I am watching on Hulu a Vice documentary called Dark Side of the Ring, which is about professional wrestling, which is a great passion of mine. Um, and it is just a really good docu-series about uh, some really tragic, sad pro wrestling stories, which is like perfectly in my wheelhouse and not many other 35-year-old uh, women probably. <laughs> but but it's, it's for me. They made it for me. That's how I feel when I watch it. So that's what I'm watching. And I recently finished the second season of Game Face, which is on Hulu Rose and Canarty's show that is so funny and so sweet and great. And she's so awesome. And I think it's a really, really good show that I kind of feel like nobody heard of here, kind of. Um, but it's on Hulu. It's called Game Face. And it is so great. You just love her. I literally like stalked her afterwards because I'm like, you're a genius. I love her. She's so funny. 
Excellent. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us on the podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you guys. Thank you guys. It was so nice to meet you guys. What a freaking pleasure. The first two episodes of Hacks are now available on HBO Max. Subsequent episodes will premiere Thursdays on the streamer. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches are The Underground Railroad, which finally leaves the station on Amazon, Ryan Murphy's take on Halston bows on Netflix. Stars launches Run the World. And if you are tuning in and expecting to hear creator Yvette Lee Bowser on the podcast this week, she was unable to schedule time with us. And hence, we had the Marvelous Hacks Trio on, for those wondering. And rounding up this week's list, Special is back for its second and final season on Netflix. Dan. Before we get into some of these, the new shows here, I know you've got some thoughts that you wanted to share on one show that's signing off this week. Sure. I just wanted to reflect quickly on the end of Mom after eight seasons of CBS. Uh, I think it is a, I think it is a significant comedy. I think it's a significant comedy because it was a, an Emmy winning comedy and allowed Alice and Janney to, to move up that record list of Emmy wins, and it was the show she was doing as she also became an Oscar winner. So that is that is notable. I think it is also very significant because it's a show that represents a turning point in Chuck Lorre's career. Chuck Lorre, obviously, extraordinarily successful and lucrative in the multicam space. Uh, and I think this was probably the first show of his that blended drama and comedy in quite this way. And if you look at the subsequent shows he's done, whether it's Bob Hart's Abishola or Be Positive or even Young Sheldon in comparison to The Big Bang Theory, this is something that he has discovered he can do more of. And I, I think it's very interesting. I think Mom is a show that was always very respectful and very serious in its purpose in reflecting the experience of addiction and recovery and how it is an ongoing process. And I think that continued in the, the series finale, which I thought felt nicely like a series finale in that it kind of reflected, okay, here are the characters at a good place in their lives, but here are imperfect things that are still happening, and here is the fight they are still fighting. I definitely think that there could have been probably a little bit more acknowledgement of the journey that the show went on, and I think that that is one of the things that's interesting to me about Mom, because when you go back to where it started, it started as being this show about three generations of women who were all mothers too young. And so it was the Allison Janney and Anna Ferris, but it was also uh, Sadie Calvano who played Violet, uh, Christie's daughter. And the show shifted over the years and it ceased to be about that quite so much. First, Sadie Calvano was written out. I believe she mostly just wanted to go to college, I think, which, you know, seems reasonable. And and the show didn't really lose all that much when it lost her or when it lost Christie's other child, uh, who basically was unmentioned after a certain point. And then in the last season, when Anna Ferris decided to leave, it became, again, another show. And it became the show that it was transitioning into, where it became more and more this kind of group thing. It became more about the support group of, of women. And so there were all of these wonderful supporting performances. Jamie Presley was always great on the show. Mimi Kennedy was always wonderful on the show. I think that Beth Hall, as she got more and more to do, was extremely funny. Um, I think that Kristen Johnson started off 
a little big. Um, that's not a reference to her being an extremely tall person. It's a reference to the fact that she was on a more sitcom show than necessarily mom was. But I think that her volume kind of adapted more to the show's volume as it went along. Um, and yeah, I, I, I just think this was a really good show. And I think this was a really good show that a lot of people made assumptions about just based on its, its CBS pedigree and its Chuck Lorre pedigree. And I, I think it was a show that was always trying its hardest to be the best version of itself. And I don't know that every show can say that. And so I, I feel like showing a little bit of respect for the end of mom. That being said, lots of other TV coming out this week. Some of it extremely good. And definitely the first thing to be mentioned is the underground railroad on Amazon, which is uh, Barry Jenkins's biggest foray into television, but it, really needs to be remembered by many people that he directed a great episode of Dear White People in its first season. Um, just a, a super episode of TV. So it's not like he's some sort of total TV neophyte. But in this case, he directed all 10 episodes of the adaptation of Colson Whitehead's Pulitzer Prize winning novel. Um, the conceit of that novel, for those who don't know, is basically... That the Underground Railroad was a literal thing. It was actually a system of underground locomotives that were taking slaves to freedom. And it becomes this sort of magical realist conceit on top of this harsh and painful story of of slavery. And I, I think it's it is a it is a thing of substance, this miniseries. That is that is sort of the first and primary thing. And it's also a thing that some people are simply not going to want to watch because it's a lot of slavery. It's a, a lot of misery and it's just a lot because Barry Jenkins pretty much gets to do whatever he wants here. So of the 10 episodes, one of them is randomly 20 minutes long. Don't ask me why. Well, I could tell you why, but it might be spoiling things. Uh, several of them are 77 minutes long and that's just a thing. Um, when the show is good, it is completely and totally spectacular. The The ninth episode, uh, which Jenkins wrote and directed, he has a team of writers also, is as good an episode of TV as you will see this season. It does, it does everything good storytelling is supposed to do. And several other episodes are also quite wonderful. Some of the episodes struggle a little bit with the episodic nature of Whitehead's narrative. It's it's very episodic. This is not a 10-hour movie. I don't care what anyone wants to say. This is a series of 10 episodic vignettes about a young woman trying to get to freedom. And so some of them don't always work as well as others, but even the ones that don't necessarily work as well as the ninth episode are astonishingly shot. Uh, James Laxton is the cinematographer here, and there is there is really no frame in this entire miniseries that isn't gorgeous to look at. You just have to know that it has its own unique pace and its own unique sense of how characters are, or in some cases are not, being presented and delivered. And so... You just have to keep that in mind. It is a tough watch. I think that it is also a very, very hopeful series. I think the hopefulness is what Barry Jenkins would like to project, and I think there's a lot of that. And yeah, I, I, you know, this this is a thing of substance that will be a thing of consideration when we get to award season in 
you know, a couple of weeks when things are happening. This this is definitely going to be the best looking miniseries you will see this year, and that is saying a fair amount. Uh, the direction by Barry Jenkins is confident and sure at every point, and there are just a lot of very, very good performances. Uh, Thuso Mabedu, that's going to be totally horribly mispronounced, and I sincerely apology, apologize, is the lead, and she is she is very good. You have to wait a few episodes before you fully warm to her, but she's very good. Uh, it is nice to see William Jackson Harper in a almost romantic lead style role. He is excellent here. Uh, Joel Edgerton as the evil uh, slave catcher who's on their heels. He is also very excellent and at times gets more time than the main character. And it's just a, it's a great cast. A lot of people who shine in very, very small roles, uh, some of whom are maybe only in an episode or two. So it's, it's just a pleasure watching the evolving ensemble as the series goes along. So it is a a good, good show, and people should be checking it out. Um, it is a significantly better show than uh, Netflix's Halston. Uh, Netflix is getting into a recent run of Friday shows that are having their review embargoes saved for Friday. Last week's was the truly awful Jupiter's Legacy. Halston is better than that, if nothing else, because it's only five episodes, so it's reasonably short. Uh, <laughs> for those who don't know, it, it stars Ewan McGregor as the fashion legend known mostly as Halston, and it follows his rise and very, very boring and predictable fall um, in the 70s and 80s. And for about two and a half to three episodes, every other scene features Halston snorting cocaine or somebody telling him he has a cocaine problem that's going to cause him to ruin his life. So it becomes monotonous in a hurry. I think its primary problem is that there's, frankly, very little storytelling perspective. And that is some disappointment, given that the show is, is among other people, from Mr. Ryan Murphy, who is co-writer on most of the episodes, as is frequent collaborator Ian Brennan. And Char White is, I believe, the third creator such as it is. Uh, Daniel Minahan, who is a very talented director, directed all of the episodes. And there are things here I like very much, and I think a show could have been built around a lot of them. I was finally less enthused, basically, at all. And then sort of last among things, uh, FX, if people haven't noticed, and I don't feel like any of them other than that random Britney Spears episode of the news magazine series have been getting any buzz whatsoever. FX has been in the documentary business for a little while, and they have Pride coming, premiering on Friday. It is a six-part history of the LGBTQ plus movement uh, from the 50s to the present day. And each episode is from a different director. So basically, each episode has a different kind of visual gimmick. Some kind of amusing, like the first episode features recognizable actors standing in for historical figures while there are real interviews with the people from those figures' lives. It's an interesting thing. Aaliyah Shawkat is among the actors in it. Uh, and it, it focuses on a lot of kind of intermediate knowledge figures from within this movement. So like the Stonewall Riots, which is kind of the introductory gay rights movement 
event is almost an afterthought because the point is maybe you know about this. Here are stories and people you don't know about. And I think a lot of them are very, very interesting. I, I Because of the different directors doing different takes, I definitely thought it was an uneven thing, sometimes within episodes themselves, because it's half personal stories from directors, and then they still kind of have to acknowledge historical events so that people who don't know can follow. And sometimes that's a bit bumpy. Um, but yeah, I, I think it is definitely worth checking out. Probably not worth checking out the way that FX is airing it, which is in two different Friday night, three-hour chunks. But like everything else, it will then live on Hulu, and you can catch up on episodes as you go. And I think it will be very watchable and interesting subsequently in that form. So, deep sigh, that's what I got from the Critics' Corner this week. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thanks, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by Master of None showrunner Alan Yang for what was a great interview. Yes, indeed. Feel free to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing because it does help spread the word of mouth. We're always on Twitter and happy to hear from you. Questions, comments, concerns. But rest assured, if you actually ask us a question on Twitter, I'm going to tell you to email us, darn it, because that's how we like to get questions for the podcast, like our question from Greg this week. So if you want to be part of future podcasts or future mailbag segments, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5 at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.